The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us in these amazing pages. We thank you most of all that you've spoken to us through your son, the Lord Jesus. And as uh, we come together now under your word to think about your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us. Let each, each one of us know that we're not here this morning on accident or randomly, but that you've brought us here and you want to meet with us. You want to talk to us. It's true. Some of us you want to confront, awaken. Some of us you want to encourage and build up. All of us you want to draw near to yourself by your grace. We thank you that you don't save anybody based on what they've done or how much they deserve it. And that none of us have to do some amazing, awesome, terrible thing to impress you. But we can come as we are, and you receive us based on who you are and what you've done. We thank you for this. Help us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our last message in our series on having an answer for what we believe. Uh, you'll remember this verse from 1 Peter 3.15 is very important to us in this series. Peter said... To the believers, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Jesus has this holy place he's set apart in our hearts. And we have this hope. It's true as Christians, right? We have this amazing hope. We have amazing things to say about who God is and what he's done for us and what life will be like. We have this incredible hope. And then Peter says to Christians, because you have this hope, you, you need to always be prepared to make a defense or to have an answer for the hope that you have. Now, isn't that incredible? Here we're seeing that for Christians, doubts are welcomed because those who have doubts say, wait, why should we believe that? They're, they're welcome to come in and to ask. Doubts are welcomed. Maybe you grew up in a place where if you had doubts or questions, the church was like, don't ask that. Don't talk about that. Don't do that. And it made you think, are they hiding something? <laughs> Is this just a, a trick? No, Peter says, no, we have answers for what we believe. Bring your doubts. Ask your questions. But we also see that Christians are supposed to live in such a way with this hope they have that people would be like, what's up with you? Why do you believe these things? What is it you've got going on? And then as Christians, we're supposed to have an answer for what we believe. So we not only have a what we believe as Christians, we have a why we believe it. And we need to be ready to share that why. And all of that is because Christianity claims to be true. It's true. So the question we're dealing with today, and we've had a lot of juicy ones, can we really believe the Bible how can we believe in God when there's evil and suffering? How can we believe in the God of the Old Testament? How can we say there's one religion in the midst of all the others? We've tried to cover those. Today, really, it's most important. This is the biggest question. 
The question today answers every other question in a way. If we're wrong on this question, we're wrong on everything. We should quit now. If we're right, then it really all will be okay in the end. And the question is this. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? This question is close to me lately. I uh, officiated my grandmother's funeral a couple weeks ago and officiated another funeral on Friday. If you've ever been to a funeral, um, there's this funny atmosphere where you're trying to say all the nice things and sometimes you're trying to ignore all the, the elephants in the room that we know are there due to people's lives and the hardships that were faced. And people will say things like, well, I know they're looking down on us now. They've got their wings. Or even if it was somebody who would really mess some things up in life. We're all kind of, we're, maybe I'm the only one who ever senses these things. Do you feel this way? It's kind of like we're all doing this gentle dance in the room to, to, to say this right. And sometimes, quite frankly, I feel like we're all liars. Now, it wasn't that way at my grandma's funeral. And I don't think it was that way this Friday. But that's been my experience so many times. What right do we have to say at funerals that those we love are still alive, they know about us, care about us, and they're with other people we've loved? First of all, is that real? I mean, really? Are you, next time you see a rainbow, are you going to go look for the pot of gold? Are you still hunting for the unicorn? And then you're going to be with your loved ones after you die. Isn't that just kind of mythological stuff we do to give us hope in this hard life? Do you really believe that? What right do you have to say that with any integrity, with any honesty? And then the second part is this. If you do think there's life after death, what right do you have to, to believe that you or anyone else will be there? What I mean is this. If there's a holy God who will have us answering for how we've lived, what we've thought, what we've said, how we've treated others, according to his law and his standard, how many of us can just waltz in there and be like, hey, what's up? I deserve to be here. What gives us an anchor on any of this? And the answer, of course, is Jesus rose from the dead. That's it. That's our hope. That's our everything. He rose from the dead. If that's true, then what we believe is true. If that's not true, we're idiots. That's the question. So there's challenges to that, right? Uh, when I'm doing these kind of messages, I know there's hundreds of varieties of challenges to all of these things, and obviously in one message you can't hope to deal with all of them. So I try to take the most common things that I've read and heard and put them into to regular categories. So you might hear challenges that are a little different than this, but they will probably fit into one of these four categories, four challenges. Number one, people will say, hey, it's too ridiculous to believe that someone rose from the dead. That's just nuts. I've never seen it before. I don't know anyone who's seen it before. Why would you believe in such a crazy crazy miracle. Anybody ever heard that one? It's just too much. It goes beyond what my reasoning can handle. Second, 
Well, the resurrection's just a myth. It's a nice story made up later on, but when it comes down to actual history, the resurrection's not true. It's mythological, it's legendary, therefore you can't really believe that it's real. Or third, the resurrection is a sentimental wish. It's a sentimental wish. In other words, the disciples really loved Jesus, and they were so into him, and then when he died on the cross, they could not handle it. And so afterwards, in order to cope, in order to say, you know, we weren't total failures, we didn't just drink the Kool-Aid, in order to cope, they said, oh, well, he really is alive. It's a sentimental wish, and there's some varieties to how they would do that, but they wanted it to be true. So they kind of, you know, you can talk yourself into believing something you want to believe. So they talk themselves into believing it. They wanted it to be true. So it's just, it's, number one, the challenge, it's just too miraculous, too crazy to believe. Number two, well, it's a myth. Okay, let's not take this too seriously. Number three, it's a sentimental wish of the disciples. Number four, and now we're just being a little more scheduled. Number four, well, this is just a lie. The disciples lied about this. This was to get them power and influence to, um, to spread what they were doing. And so they lied about Jesus being alive. Those are the challenges. Maybe you can think of some others. If you can think of some other challenges to the resurrection, let me know. I'm, I'm very curious. So before we try to answer those four things, it's just too ridiculous to believe, it's a myth, it's a wish, it's a lie, let's remember quickly the stakes of what we're talking about. In other words, how important is this? So I really need you to follow along with me in your Bibles. If you didn't bring your own, uh, 961 in your chair Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to start first with verses 3 to 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we come here, I want you to see this first point, and that is this. The resurrection is the primal, ultimate, most fundamental claim of Christians. This is the main thing. This is the hub of the wheel. This is the foundation. The resurrection is the primal, ultimate claim of of Christians. This, this is really our headquarters. This is where we build our house, right here, on the resurrection. Look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians verses three, 15, verses 3 to 7. He says, that's page 961, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So what did Paul say in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of, as of what? First importance. This is the most important thing. There's lots of things to believe, argue about, discuss. This is most important. This is it right here. And then he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day, he was what? He was raised. He was raised. And not only that, what did he do after being raised? Verse 5. And that he appeared. He appeared. And who did he appear to? Cephas, the twelve, then verse six, who did he appear to? More than 500 people, 
And then also, James in verse 7, Paul in verse 8. So is this unclear to anyone? What's Paul saying? Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him. Isn't that what he's saying? He rose from the dead. We saw him. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. He's alive. He appeared. Paul is saying, he's arguing, this is what makes us who we are. This is what's most important. Now look what's happening in the Corinthian church. Look down now at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So what are some of the Corinthians saying? This is odd. Supposedly they're Christians at Christian church. What are they saying? They're saying there's no resurrection. They're saying that Christians won't rise again with real bodies when Jesus comes back. So there's something called Gnosticism, which... This is probably dealing with the Gnosticism. The body was bad and the spiritual was good. And this is how you modern Americans, how we're Gnostics. Okay? Did you know you were a Gnostic? Anybody ever have an idea in their mind that when you die and go to heaven, you'll have wings, play a harp, and float on the clouds? Okay? Didn't you see the Simpsons? That's what Homer was doing when he went to heaven. It's a spiritual thing. It's a floaty thing. It's a cloud thing. It's a music thing. So you get, I get questions like this. Will, will, we, will we be recognizable in heaven? Will we know people in heaven? There's this idea that it's like the, a spiritual sauna, right? And I'll be honest, when I was a little kid, my idea of heaven was so warped, I, didn't, I wasn't really excited to go there. It was just better than the alternative, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay? Kindling or float around and sing. The Corinthians are doing that kind of a thing. You're not going to be resurrected into a body. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. No body. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not right. That is so not right. The Christian message is you're going to be resurrected into a body and you're going to look like you except awesome you. Sinless you, uncorrupted you. You're going to be you. And you're going to know the other yous and me. And we're going to live on a world with dirt and leaves and air, and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a real earth, and we're going to live there, and we're going to enjoy it. The first thing we're going to do is going to the, we're going to go to the marriage feast of the Lamb. You know what you need to have a feast? You need food. You need teeth and taste buds and, and the juice of the steak to run down your chin and then the most delicious wine you've ever said. I'm not making this up. This is a biblical claim. Jesus said, Here's, this, this is the blood of the covenant, um, and take and drink it. I'm not drinking it again until that feast later on. You're all going to eat at my table. You're going to eat at my table. I'm excited for that meal. And we're going to have to have bodies to do that. Real bodies. So this gets Paul really going. Now look, I want to focus for a moment on verses 13 to 19. So Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead... Then, then what? Let's follow this through. He says, all right, there's no resurrection. Well, if you're not going to rise, then guess who else didn't rise? Then Jesus didn't rise. Okay? Let's be consistent. And then verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then here he goes. 
then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 15. We're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who are also have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you catch that? So here's what's at stake with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, every sermon I preached was the biggest pile of junk ever. It's vain. It's worthless. It's dust. And your faith, every little prayer you prayed, every little thing you tried to do that was right, every little hope you put in Jesus, if Jesus hasn't been raised, you're an idiot. Your faith is vain. It's worthless. It's junk. Not only that, verse 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're liars. Because what's the Christian message has been from day one? Jesus rose from the dead, and that's how God's saving the world. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're saying things that aren't true about God. That means the Muslims are right if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We're liars. We're making things up. He's not the Son of God. He didn't die for sins. They're right. It means all the other religions maybe have something to say. It means Christians are wrong. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're liars, we're misrepresenting God. Verse 17, your sins aren't paid for if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know all this message we've been saying about how look to Jesus and he'll be your perfection and he'll be your forgiveness and he'll earn your adoption? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you've got to save yourself by your works. Good luck. Go get it. You're not forgiven. Have fun with that. Be perfect. Try to please God, whatever God is. You're not saved. You're still in your sins. Verse 18, if Jesus, isn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all the stuff about going to see Grandma when we die, and all our people together that we love, what are you smoking? What are you smoking? It's a big joke. It's a big joke. It's all a lie. In fact, verse 19, Paul puts it so plainly. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear what he's saying? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no bigger idiot than a Christian. Now for you and... Let me tell you what I think about this verse. For you and I, I think this is only half true. Because compared to the rest of the world, you and I live really nice lives. Okay? You and I live really nice lives. Um, And so for us, we're somewhat to be pitied if we're Christian. Because we were idiots who lived really nice lives. Do you think there are some of those out there? But for Paul, it's totally different. Because for Paul, the stakes are even higher. What has Paul lost over the resurrection? He's lost his people group. He's lost his title and his education. He's lost his money. He's lost his comfort. People are trying to kill him all over the known world. He's been shipwrecked. He's been whipped. He's been abandoned. He's been stoned and left for dead. Later, he's going to have his head cut off. This is not a religious game for Paul. And so when Paul says, if Jesus isn't alive, I'm the biggest clown that's ever lived because I sacrificed everything for nothing. That's what he's saying. I'm the biggest idiot in town if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now this to me is amazing for Christians. Do you realize our whole worldview, our whole view of everything, 
the Bible, the whole Bible, every song we sing, everything we say and believe and do, it all comes down to this moment, this issue. Christianity has intentionally embedded itself in an event of history. And it all comes down to this. Did Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and buried, did he rise from the dead? If yes, then Christianity and Scripture and everything else is true. By definition of who he is, what he said, but who it makes him to be. If no, Christianity is junk. Burn the Bibles, leave the church. It's stupid if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So we're all hanging right here on this. This is it. Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about any of what he said? Do you see the stakes here? If Jesus predicted his death and resurrection and then did it, you cannot ignore this man. You can't just take some and leave others. You, he's the son of God. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then he's a liar, he's a failure. Move on. Move on. Wow. So we see here, Christianity is not just a feeling or a sense of what, it, of what makes us feel good. Right? What does it mean to you? Or how are you feeling? Let's, let's get down to the nuts and bolts of it right here. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead, actually, literally, physically. Those are the stakes. So if we're going to have an answer about anything as Christians, what do you think we should have an answer for? Right here, the resurrection. The resurrection. So I'm going to do the best I can with the time we have left to hit these four challenges that I mentioned. First is just this idea Well, the resurrection is too ridiculous. It's too incredible, too miraculous, too hard to believe that someone who was dead rose again. Now, if we're going to be, if we're going to be honest people, we need to feel feel all of these questions. Have you ever thought this before? I mean, have you ever seen someone rise from the dead? I don't know about you, but I know what happens when people die. In my experience, they stay dead. Death is this wall we run into, and nobody gets up again, as I have witnessed myself. So it's hard to believe in something you have no experience of, especially with all the lies and commercials out there in the world. Gosh, why would we believe this? Now, first of all, here's what we need to do. Well, let's back up, okay? Now we're really asking, aren't we? Is it rational to believe that miracles can happen? Isn't that what we're asking? We're not asking, is everything we see a miracle? No. Just as this, is it rational to believe that miracles can happen? Well, that's going to depend an awful lot about your assumptions. Do you believe that there's a God? Now, most people would say, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. Do you believe that God made everything? Sure. And Christians, we would even say, we believe that God made everything to work regularly according to scientific law. That helps human flourishing, doesn't it? Isn't it good to know that gravity is going to hold you down tomorrow? 
that the sun's going to rise, that you plant the seed in the dirt, you water it, you give it some sunlight, it's going to grow. We need the predictability of the world happening according to scientific law. It helps us thrive. But if there's a God, and if he can make everything out of nothing, then you have to leave room for the possibility that occasionally he supersedes his own natural law in order to make a point, make himself known. Is it irrational to think that God could do that? It's not irrational at all, is it? And which is harder, raising someone from the dead or creating everything out of nothing? If you can make everything out of nothing, raising someone from the dead, meh, easy. Now, if, if you're a skeptic, you say, well, I don't really believe there's a God. Okay, all right. So the skeptic says, I don't believe there's a God and uh, can't believe in a resurrection. I've never seen anything like that. I need evidence. Okay, okay. But if you, if you don't believe there's a God, let's think about some of the things you believe. You believe that something came from nothing accidentally. And did you witness that, by the way? Were you there when that happened? You're taking that by faith. Or if you're a skeptic, you don't believe in God, and you say, well, complexity grew out of simplicity, randomly, according to physical law. All right. And life came from non-life. Life came from non-life. Have you ever seen something come from nothing or life come from non-life in your experience? Okay. And if it did happen in this one-time setting way back in the beginning, were you there to witness that? But you believe in it somehow. See, we all have things. Life is crazy. Life is, by definition, crazy. Any worldview is incredible. Life is magnificent to believe. And we all have things that we have to say, yeah, I believe that. Even though we weren't in the place with the point of view to witness, create, supersede all of it. So if you're a skeptic and say, I can't believe in the resurrection, it's too magnificent, I've never seen it happen. Well, at the same time you're saying that, you, st- you probably still believe in things that are more magnificent, and you didn't see those things happen either. Do you see? So that kind of a statement, it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't mean the resurrection wasn't real. You're just testing your view of the world. You're just asking which worldview lines up best with reality. So here's really what we need to do. We're making a claim that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, right? That's what we're doing. What kind of knowledge is that? It's not really a biological knowledge. You can't test it in a lab. You can't go back to the tomb and try to put Jesus in and see if he pops out again. It's not repeatable. What kind of knowledge is this? It's historical knowledge. Well, there's a different way to gain historical evidence for believing something. But by definition, it's not repeatable. So how do you come by historical knowledge? You have to consider the testimony of the witnesses. Any other ideas? You pretty much have to consider the testimony of the witnesses. Now use them all. Everything from the time. Archaeology, use it all. But consider the testimony of the witnesses. That's all you've got. So what makes for good history then? If you really want to believe something. For instance, is it better to have one witness or several? I'll go with several, please. 
Is it good to have a witness who is an eyewitness or one who heard about it from his friend and her friend and her friend? Let's go eyewitness, please. Would you want those testimonies to have raw, honest information or would you want it to be doctored up? In, order, in other words, would you want it to include some things that might be embarrassing? Yeah, you'd probably trust that a little more. Hmm. So what we need to do is look at historical evidence while we ask this question. We've already established this. I hope this is completely obvious to everyone. Christianity is based on the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what it is. Okay. If it's true, then this is what we have to ask. How did a religion explode out of nowhere claiming Jesus rose from the dead as its core claim? How is that possible? Because we are living in a world where it is obvious, we don't need to prove this, right? Christianity exists. It is the largest, most diverse globally and eth- eth- ethnically religion in the world. And it grew up very quickly, starting in the first century AD. And its major claim was Jesus rose from the dead. So there we are. How did that happen? How did that happen? How did it grow? Why did it grow? Why did it spread? Why was it compelling? And so then you get to these next three challenges. It was a group of people who had some power later, third or fourth century, and they used this myth, the myth of the resurrection. Or the disciples had this sentimental wish. They were, they were grieving so much and then they came up with this, this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Or three, it was a lie. They made it up for power to gain followers. Those are the three major challenges. If you can think, again, if you can think of another challenge that's different than that, I really do want to hear it. Email me, call me, tell me the different challenges. But I, most of the challenges I've ever seen fit into those three things. The resurrection is a myth created later, or it's a sentimental wish. The disciples wanted it so badly, they kind of invented it in their minds. Or three, it's just a lie, they made it up. So those are the three things we need to try to deal with. Number one here, is the resurrection a myth? Well, let's just sit on this one letter we're looking at right now, 1 Corinthians. Anybody know when 1 Corinthians was written? 1 Corinthians is a great letter to think about these kind of things with because it includes some details like the fact that Paul wrote from Ephesus. If you read Luke's account in the book of Acts, we know when Paul was in Ephesus. And so we know more than with any other letter, really, that this letter was written between AD 53 to 57. That's when it was written. How far is that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension? How many years? 20 years? Now, it doesn't take a PhD to realize that 20 years is not long enough for myth. (laughs) Myth and legends take hundreds of years. This is 20 years. That's amazing. Not only that, look with me again at verses 3 to 5. Now, I hope this is interesting to you. It sure is to me. A couple words Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also, what's that next word? Received. So he's looking at back at when he took the gospel to the Corinthians. Says, I taught you. I delivered you. Right? I delivered this to you. And then he's thinking of a moment before when he visited the Corinthians on when he received it. 
So not only are we reading this letter, let's work backwards, we're reading this letter, and then Paul's thinking about when he visited the Corinthians, and then Paul's thinking about what he learned before he visited the Corinthians. So we're way before AD 50, right? What I also received. Hmm. Did you see what he called Peter in verse 5? Jesus appeared to, what did he call him? Cephas. Why does he use Peter's Aramaic name? Well, this would be something we need more linguistic information to understand. But scholars believe that verses 3 to 5 are like an ancient Christian creed originally transmitted in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language Jesus spoke. And so you're looking here at a creed given to Paul that Christians were already using. And it was given to Paul way before he visited the Corinthians. It's when he visited the apostles. You're looking at something Paul received five years or so after Christ. This is so early. Uh, One author said, this is like a historian's dream. It's so early. And we see here historical attestation that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead 30 seconds after it happened. This is original. It is so not myth, not like myth, not similar to myth, that to say it's myth is really just... It's not being careful intellectually. It cannot be a myth. It's too early. And again, what were the stakes for Paul in this? He's going to get his head cut off for this. You don't do that for Santa Claus. It's not a myth. Okay, what about just sentimental wish? You know, the disciples, they were so pumped up for Jesus. They loved him. They were so overwhelmed when, they di- when he died. They wanted to believe it so badly. So maybe they invented it in their minds. First option here is hallucinations. Anybody ever heard this one? The disciples just hallucinated that Jesus was alive. Now, true or false, when people lose someone they love, they will sometimes hallucinate that that person is with them again. That is true. That is true. They'll have an idea that uh, grandma or someone was in the room Also, even Navy SEALs during Hell Week, they will hallucinate. You know, they don't let them sleep for several days. They're on a boat in the cold water. And there's a story of one Navy SEAL, you know, hallucinating that an octopus came up and waved at him. Okay. Huh. So maybe they hallucinated because they wanted him to be alive. They were so exhausted. Maybe they hallucinated that Jesus had risen. Well, there's some problems with this. Say you're having a great dream about a vacation in Tahiti and you wake up and you, you know, I tell my wife, oh, Mars, I'm having this great dream about a vacation in Tahiti. Come with me. And then she goes to sleep and we just hop into the same dream and enjoy <laughs> Tahiti together. Maybe it's like Inception, right? Did you see the movie? You plug it in and, oh, we're all, it's a dream within a dream. I can't share my dreams with you like that. Neither can anyone share hallucinations. Hallucinations are not group efforts. Not only that, in hallucinations, people tend to know they're hallucinating in some way. So do you think that, as far as I know, the Navy SEAL has not resigned from the Navy and started a nonprofit organization for relating with octopuses because he waved to one. He knows, no, that's crazy, right? It didn't change his life. He realized I was exhausted. That was the end of it. So, given what we've read, 1 Corinthians, 20 years after Jesus, Paul said, Peter saw Jesus, 
500 people saw Jesus. All the apostles saw Jesus. James, who we'll think about in a little bit, saw Jesus. And I saw Jesus. All 550 people had the same hallucination. Identical. And they all changed their lives for it. And not one of the leaders later on when they were being whipped or persecuted or having their homes taken away was like, you know what, I give up. It's a hallucination. Really? What kind of faith do you have to have to believe that everyone have a hallucination and then lived and died for it all at the same time? It's just preposterous that this could happen. Second is the swoon theory. It can't be a hallucination. You ever heard of the swoon theory? The swoon theory is, well, technically, if you're hung on a cross, wrists and feet, you could hang there for quite a while and you wouldn't be dead. It's possible in some circumstances. So maybe... When they took Jesus down from the cross, he wasn't actually dead. Sounds like the prince's bride, right? <laughs> wasn't actually dead. And then maybe he recovered a little bit later, and they were all like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> that's impressive. You lived through it. And then they made up a story based on, well, look, he did that because he's like God. The swoon theory. Hmm. Some problems with this. Number one, if you're... If we're taking any of these documents seriously at all, you're going to know what happened on the chain of events of Jesus' death. One is, he was beaten and then beaten again. There's a horrible uh, verse where Jesus is left in a room with a whole group of Roman soldiers and they beat him. That's terrifying. Does anybody want to endure that? You and Roman soldiers, and they're beating you. Then he's whipped. Then later on he's flogged, and that's the Roman version if you saw passion of the Christ, they got the handle, they got the chains, they got the rocks and bone and stuff at the end, and then they just rip you apart, and your guts are showing from the back, and you lose ridiculous amounts of blood, and a lot of people did not live through it. Then you're crucified, and after all that Jesus went through, the only way he's going to breathe is you have to pull up and push down on the nails to get a breath and then hang there again. If you were left there, you would die of asphyxiation. Not only that, overseeing all this is Roman executioners. They crucify people all the time. They know how to kill people. And lastly, it says in the text that in order to make sure that Jesus was dead, because the Sabbath was coming, they broke the legs of the other prisoners. Really cruel. You break their legs so they can't push up to get a breath anymore. So they hang there and suffocate. But with Jesus... They stabbed him with a spear into his heart and blood and water came out. Then, according to the burial tradition, they would wrap him in 80 to 100 pounds of gauze and spices and such. And then they put his body into a cool cave and sealed it with a large rock and put a group of soldiers in front of it to guard it so that no one would steal the body. So to believe the swoon theory... You have to believe that Jesus went through all of that, climbed out of his mummified costume, pushed the rock open, beat up all the soldiers. And then if you read the book of Acts, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, goes on a walk to Emmaus with his disciples. It's a seven-mile walk. Okay? Do you think you could be crucified one day and walk seven miles the next day? How are those feet? No problem. <laughs> so the disciples saw, I mean, it, it just, he cannot possibly be alive. 
He cannot possibly be alive. And if he was possibly alive, are the disciples going to worship him or are they going to take him to the emergency room? You're looking a little rough. (laughs) They were hiding. They were hiding in fear before they saw the risen Christ. They were hiding in fear. They weren't looking to do anything. They were terrified. They were petrified. And then a week later, they're preaching boldly in a temple because they hallucinated or because Jesus wasn't totally dead? Not possible. The whole idea that this would be a sentimental wish of the apostles cannot fit with the documents we have. It's not possible. All right, well, let's just get down to it. Maybe they were lying. They were lying. They started a movement. They wanted power, created a religion. Look, religions get created all the time, right? Maybe they were lying. Well, here's the thing. The disciples were in a unique position when it comes to their religion to know whether or not it was true. Weren't they? They saw him, or they didn't see him. But they know. People don't tend to suffer together for what they know to be a lie. Have you ever heard of Chuck Colson? He's a Christian writer, passed away a little bit ago. He was part of Richard Nixon's administration, and he was involved in Watergate. So if you remember Watergate, what was there? Well, there was a oopsie-doopsie by the president, and then there was a cover-up. Okay? So you have professional politicians trying to save their own skin with the cover-up. And how long did that last? Two whole weeks. Let me wrote to you what Colson says. He wrote, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides of the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing embarrassment, maybe prison, but nobody's life was at stake. And here Colson says, but what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, and execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Why didn't they crack? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe someone will say, well, what about the 9-11 terrorists? People die for a lie, right? They flew their planes into those buildings. But what's the difference between the terrorists and the apostles? The terrorists didn't know for a fact whether or not what they believed was true. They weren't the first witnesses. The disciples did. Would you lose everything for what you know to be a lie? Would you lose everything for what you know to be a lie? Do you think this group would lose everything for what we know to be a lie, or would one of us crack? The disciples saw Jesus. Couldn't be a lie. Think of the three names Paul includes here in 1 Corinthians 15. Cephas, we saw, it's his Aramaic name. Then, then Paul mentions James and himself. Why do you think he mentions James and himself? 
He says of all the apostles, all the apostles. Then he points out James and himself particularly. Why do you think? Remember who James was. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And question for you. Did James believe his brother was the Christ during Jesus' life? No, he did not. Did not buy it. I personally think James was tired of losing every argument with his siblings. (laughs) You know, they get in a fight. Mom comes and says, sorry, James, you know he's the Christ. You're wrong. You're always wrong, James, because he's always right. I don't think James can handle that. But honestly, if your brother says, I'm God, how many of you are going to ride that boat for very long? Okay? I'm God. Yeah. What's it going to take for James to believe that Jesus is the Christ? You think disciples are going to be like, James, the body's gone. Want to join our new company of spreading Jesus around? You want to join our new company of suffering to claim that Jesus rose from the dead? James is like, no thanks. I'm not into that. What's it going to take to make James a believer? Can you imagine this moment? Who knows what James was doing? All of a sudden he hears, Hi, James. And it's Jesus. James got thrown off the temple for proclaiming that his brother was the Christ. How are you going to explain James? Hallucinations? Lies? At some point, you have to realize the best explanation for why Christianity exploded in the first century, the only explanation for why Christianity exploded in the first century, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? The very, very first. Women. Jesus had dear, dear friendships with several women in his life. And he chose that his first appearance at the grave would be women. Now, why is this interesting? It's interesting because at that time, women were second-class citizens, and supposedly their statements couldn't even be admitted in, in court. So what a woman says doesn't matter because she's a woman. So if you're going to make up a new religion, and you know you have to lie about it and put it together, and you're picking, okay, I want to write this well so people will believe it. Who do you think my first witness should be? You might take like the high priest. Wouldn't you pick the high priest? He walks into the temple, the curtain's torn away. There's Jesus. The high priest believes. Or, I don't know, Pilate. That would be a cool story. Um, Who's going to pick women? Why do all the gospel writers pick women? Because it's true. Jesus rose from the dead, and he appeared to those women that he loved so much. Looking at the evidence, which is the only way to do history, we have multiple attestation, don't we? Several independent gospels, the epistles. We have embarrassing information included, like the disciples being kind of stupid about things. Jesus' first appearance being to women. We have eyewitness testimony. And we have groups named who knew of two things 
Empty tomb, appearances. Now, why do you need both of those things? Well, say you've just had an appearances, but not an empty tomb. Well, where do we go? Amazing how God put this together. Everybody in the city knew where Jesus was buried. It's a rich man's tomb. Not everybody got the nice hole in the limestone with a stone to roll in front of it. Not everybody gets that, okay? Jesus is in this cave. It's guarded and sealed. Everybody knows where he is. So the tomb has to be empty, right? Why not next day didn't the, 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 the Pharisees and scribes go, well, here's Jesus, look, marks on his hands, look at his back, he's dead, we have the body. You don't see any of that. Why not? Tomb was empty, everybody knew it. In Acts later when Peter's talking, tomb's empty, everybody knows it. Everybody knew the tomb was empty. If you just have appearances without an empty tomb, you can go to the tomb and look, or you have hallucinations or dreams or something like that. You have appearances and an empty tomb. What if you just had an empty tomb and no appearances? Someone stole the body. We don't know who. Someone stole the body. But here you have 500 plus people saying, I saw him. I ate with him. Thomas is saying, I touched him. James is saying, it's my brother. Is Paul going to believe if you just have a stolen body? The Apostle Paul. Remember what he was into? What was his hobby before? Before meeting Jesus. He liked to kill and persecute Christians and send them to, you know, make their life hard. That's what he likes to do. So if, there's a, if the disciples steal the body and they're like, oh, Jesus, is Paul going to be like, oh, can I join? Or is he going to be like, lock him up? Why does Paul believe? There's only one reason Paul believes. It's because Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you messing with me? And Paul says, Lord, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. Oh. Jesus rose from the dead. How long does it take countries, nations, civilizations to change culturally, like really deeply ingrained practices? How long would it take us to not have a weekend any longer in America? Okay? Or even just to change it from like Monday to Tuesday instead of Saturday and Sunday. How long would that take? Or maybe let's uh, get rid of Christmas. No more Christmas. How long would that take culturally? Things would have to happen. Okay? Why does a group of Jews who for thousands of years have been saying, you've got to circumcise and we worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, and we can't eat with Gentiles or worship with them. Why are they in one fell swoop saying, pass the bacon, let's worship on Sundays, and hey, Gentile, you're my brother, you're my sister. Why does that happen overnight? Why are a group of Jews who have been consistently monotheistic why are they also worshiping a man named Jesus? Why do these things, these cultural things, it takes, why are they doing this? How does this happen so quickly? What do you think? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. It can't be a lie. It can't be a sentimental wish. It can't be a myth. He's alive. Now listen, this is not like believing you saw Elvis. It's not like believing you saw Elvis. Why is it different? It's different because Jesus is different. Who did he claim to be? Son of God. What did he claim that he would do? 
save sinners. How did he claim that he would do it? He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. What did he say he would do? He would give his life over to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he'd be killed, and on the third day he would rise again. It's different because Jesus is different. He lived differently. He did different things. He predicted. Then he accomplished what he said. In accordance with the scriptures, promises from hundreds and hundreds of years previously. It's an amazing thing to believe in the resurrection. It's not irrational. In fact, if you look at the evidence, I think it's irrational to deny it. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, you remember Paul in the verses we read today said, if Jesus wasn't raised, then our preaching and faith are worthless. What if he was raised? Then our preaching and our faith in him are priceless. He's alive. Paul said, if Jesus wasn't raised, we're liars. What if he was raised? This is the truth. This is the truth that everyone needs. This means he is who he says he is. He did what he did. Paul said, if Jesus wasn't raised, you're still in your sins. If he was raised, what does this mean for you? He really did die on the cross for your sins, for mine. He really did rise in victory. He really did earn your salvation. He really did give his perfection to all who believe in him. He really did make you right with God so that you could be a son, a daughter, adopted. He really did save you. Paul said, if Jesus wasn't raised, there's no hope, and suffering is vain. I'm a fool. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you hear that? That's what Paul was thinking about when he got whipped and stoned, this light momentary affliction. Now, how many of you would call being whipped and stoned Light momentary affliction. Okay? Come on, you panic when you go to the dentist. How you doing? I have a class and homework to do. (laughs) First world problems. You see that YouTube video? Look it up. I'm so hungry and all there is is leftovers. (laughs) I got up early to go to church. We need awards for this, don't we? Good job. (laughs) Paul's getting whipped and stoned and shipwrecked, and he says, light momentary affliction. We got brothers and sisters in Iraq dying because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they can say with Paul, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why? Because Jesus rose for me. I'm going to rise as well. I'm going to rise again. You're going to rise again. You're going to live again. You're going to cheat death. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He really, truly rose. So I could save the man on Friday, even though he did not live a super perfect life. He trusted in Jesus, and that's enough. 
And he's with the Father because Jesus did everything that man needed. I can say to you, my grandma's fine. She's with the Lord. Because Jesus died for her and rose again for her, and she's with him, and one day he will give her a new body. We will rise. You're going to live again. Death can't beat you. Because Jesus is alive. One last thing. Look at the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the resurrection chapter. Go home and read it. But here's the result. If you believe Jesus rose again, then this verse is for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's he call you? Loved brothers and sisters, look at your identity. Because Jesus died and rose for you, you're adopted. Beloved brothers and sisters. Then he gives us some encouragements. Steadfast, immovable. What can keep you steadfast and immovable through all the suffering and pain of life? Jesus rose and I will too. Jesus rose and I will too. Steadfast, immovable, and then, what else? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because this life is the appetizer and the next life is the ultimate, we can sacrifice in this life for the gospel knowing we'll get really the sweet spot later forever. Now think about your life. If this life is all you have, are you motivated to sacrifice and suffer for anything? Or you just want to be comfy and happy as much as you can? Okay? If this life is all you have, be as comfortable and as happy as you can right now, whatever it takes, because this is all you get. But if this life is just the appetizer, light, momentary, and the next life is forever, you're going to rise again, then what is this life really for? The next life. If you're going to rise again and meet Jesus, what will you want to have done with this life? <coughs> Devoted to him. So if you believe intellectually that Jesus is alive, let's look at our lives together. If you're a kid and you're listening to this, and start now where some of us wish we could have started. How many of you wish you really seriously trying to start follow Jesus when you were seven? Or when you were a teenager? Man, I wasted my teenager years. Wasted them. You're going to rise again. Use it for Christ. Follow him, love him, seek him. Use it for Christ. No matter where you are, how old you are, what you're doing, you're going to rise again. Abound in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. That's what we want to invest in. Let's pray. Jesus, you are awesome. Father, the story you've written is awesome, the way you've controlled history, sovereign over it. You knew it was needed. You did what it took. And we celebrate together that Jesus is alive. I pray for any skeptic in here that um, they be open to thinking about this, Consider it, and that you would, as you do, appear to them by your Holy Spirit, um, showing them who you are, what you've done, inviting them to belong to you. For all of us, Lord, who are Christians already, strengthen our faith, the knowledge that it's, it's true, that you rose, and also, Lord, help us to take stock of how we're living and to live like we're going to live again, to live like we're going to rise, to pour ourselves out into your kingdom as best we can, no matter the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.